You know, the story of our faith reminds us that we are all children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family that is bound together by our faith in Christ. Uh, but like, you know, all the people of faith that we find in the Bible, um, we too sometimes find family life a little complex. You know, we have personality conflicts, we have disagreements, we have jealousies, and that's all part of being human and human relationships. But when we come together in worship, we acknowledge all of that baggage, and yet we're grateful that God chooses us, and he loves us, and he works through us, and he encourages us to be people of faith. And uh, so thank you for being uh, part of that uh, journey this morning. Let's pray together, shall we? Compassionate God, we marvel at how open you are to us. You know us as we are. You understand all the ways that we bring pain into our own lives, and you see all the ways we bring pain sometimes into the lives of others. And yet you listen to us without judgment. You love us unconditionally. You accept us as your children. So help us to be generous uh, with ourselves. Help us to love ourselves as you love us. And then may, we, uh, may that love we learn from you uh, be extended to others as we transform the relationships in our lives. Uh, through Christ, we pray. Amen. Today is the last uh, Sunday of our teaching series on the life story of Abraham and Sarah from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Uh, next week, we're going to move on to a new series called Something Greater, and there's information in your worship folder today about that new teaching series. Uh, today, we're looking at the first part of the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 25, and there, um, it's uh, where the mantle of leadership is passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. And it seems to me that uh, all the days uh, that we spend on this earth, even for the best and greatest of saints, are not all remarkable days. Some days just go by without a lot of fanfare. And that's what we see in these last uh, days of Abraham. The first portion of chapter 25 is an account of Abraham's children by his second wife, Keturah, and the disposition of Abraham's estate. And we might call this section the last will and testament of Abraham. But in these verses, he's setting his house in order with wisdom and with fairness uh, to the family, and he doesn't leave it for somebody else to do after he's gone. He's doing it while he's still alive. But I think there's a great lesson in this story for us, and that is that whether our stay on this earth is a long one or a short one, that's not really the point. What is the point is that we leave behind us a legacy, a testimony to the faithfulness and the goodness of God and we leave behind an example, a good example for our families to follow. So today we're going to close the history of Abraham's life and uh, give thanks to God for this great man of faith and for all the lessons uh, that his life has been able to teach us uh, across these weeks. Let's pray together. God, we remember how Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me uh, will live even though they die. And he also said, I tell you the truth, those who believe in me will have everlasting life. And so we long for that day when Jesus will return to this earth as the triumphant king, when the dead will be raised to life and we will see Jesus face to face. We anticipate that day because we know that he will heal our hurts, he will end our wars, he will make all the crooked paths in this world straight. And then we will join in that new song to the Lamb of God, and he will be our all in all. He will be our righteousness and our peace, and everything about this world 
in which we live will be made new. God, we can't wait for every eye on this planet to see that at last our world belongs to not the rich and powerful, not the corrupt and the greedy, not to the politicians or dictators, but to you. We love you this morning and we worship you. Open our hearts to all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just runner, but he didn't practice with the team. He's our best hope for a gold medal, but it's not fair to, to, uh, to the man he bumps off the team. Who cares? Just win. Wait a second, he's already won nine gold medals. And so the discussion went. In the end, Carl Lewis did not run on the four by 100 relay team in the Atlanta Olympic Games. And shockingly, America came in second to Canada. And now the second guessing began. What if Carl Lewis had run? Would it have made any difference? Replay showed that the race was lost in the exchange between the second and third runners. For a tiny sliver of a microsecond, they struggled to pass the baton. That little bit of hesitation slowed them down enough so that the Canadian runners were able to win the gold medal. It wasn't the running that mattered, but the passing of the baton. Our runners were easily as fast, if not faster, than the Canadians, but in the end, that made no difference. When you fumble the baton, you lose the race. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said that the Christian faith is always just one generation away from extinction, or to put it in the words first coined by Bruce Wilkinson, God has no grandchildren. The Christian faith is like a relay race in which one generation passes the baton of God's truth on to the next generation. As a parent, it is my sacred responsibility to see that the Christian faith is passed down to my children. And if I live long enough to my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. As a pastor, I try to sincerely impart God's truth to this congregation so that you will pass it along to those you meet, to your family. And as a Christ follower, I must use every opportunity to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to say a good word on his behalf. Now let me put it another way. I do not believe that God will hold me accountable for what people do with the truth they may hear from my teaching. I can't answer for my children, and they can't answer for me, nor can I answer for all of you. But I absolutely will be held accountable for doing all that I can to ensure that the truth I know is passed along to others so that the Christian faith will continue to the next generation. That much I can do and that much I must do and God will not accept my, any excuses for my failure to complete that mission. We have come to the last, uh, to the end of Abraham's life. He is now a very old man. He's about 175 years old and for the last 100 years he has lived in or near the promised land. Sarah has been dead for about 38 years at this point, and her pass, after her passing, Abraham had married Keturah and had six other sons by her. And that means that Abraham had eight sons in all, six by Keturah, Ishmael by the maidservant Hagar, and Isaac by his wife Sarah. No doubt he loved them all, but only Isaac was the son of the promise. And I want to invite you to look at uh, chapter 25 and the first uh, six verses. 
because it makes this story come clear. In uh, verse 1, Abraham married another wife whose name was Keturah. She gave birth to, and you can look at the whole list of names. I'm not going to go through that uh, for you. Uh, and then it go down a little bit, and it says, These were all the descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to his son Isaac. But before he died, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them off to the land in the east away from Isaac. Now, by giving gifts to his other family members, he honored those sons, and by sending them away to uh, the east, he indicated that Isaac, and only Isaac, was the son of the promise. Now, we come to the end of his life, and it appears that he dies in pretty good spirits. Abraham Verse 7, lived for 175 years, and he died at a ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life. He breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. This was the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites and where he had buried his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who settles near uh, Bir Leroy in the Negev. And verse 7 tells us three facts about Abraham's situation at the end of his life. First, that he lived to a ripe old age. Secondly, that he was an old man. And third, he lived a long and satisfying life. Now, I particularly like the way the New American Standard Bible translates those three phrases. It says that Abraham died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. What a wonderful way to put it. He was satisfied with his life. How many people can say that today on their deathbeds? Not everyone. A lot of people come to the end of their life and they look back with regret and with remorse for lost opportunities or foolish mistakes that they had made over the years. No doubt Abraham had his share of both. And yet he looks back over his 175 years and he is satisfied with the life that he lived. Now, as anyone knows who studied this story, Abraham didn't have an easy life, just the opposite. Along the way, he went through periods of frustration and discouragement and physical hardship and spiritual compromise. He experienced more than his share of personal loss. He saw the glitter of Egypt. He smelled the smoke rising from the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. He heard the voice of God and later lied to save his own skin. He had to give up the fir his firstborn son, Ishmael, and send him away, and that must have broken his heart. And as far as we know, Isaac and Ishmael never really reconciled, and nor did his wife, Sarah, and her maid, Hagar. He wept when he buried his wife, Sarah, and then he had the satisfaction of seeing his son Isaac marry Rebecca. Certainly he lived a full life, a long life, and he packed a lot into those 70, 175 years. And through it all, even in the worst of moments, he remained a person of faith. He never lost sight of the God who called him out of his home country in Ur a hundred years earlier, and for that reason and that reason alone, he was satisfied with life when he died. The Bible also says that he joined his ancestors in, in death. Who were his people? This does not refer to his pagan ancestry left behind in the land of Ur. Genesis 25 tells us that when he died, his sons Ishmael and Isaac came together to bury him in a cave 
which had been purchased from Ephron the Hittite. Now this tiny bit of land represented a toehold in the land of promise, the, the land that God promised. It was like a small title deed to this whole land of Canaan. By burying him there alongside his beloved wife Sarah, his sons were saying, Dad lived by faith in God's promises. And when he died, he still believed in them. We're burying him right here because someday all of this land will be given to his ancestors. And that's the torch of truth that has been passed from one generation to another. That's why the last verse of our text says, God blessed his son, Isaac. Now, as many of you know, in the four by 100 relay race, <clears throat> one runner finishes his race just as the, other, the next runner takes the baton and continues down the track. And so we see the baton being passed from Abraham to Isaac and later to Jacob and later to Joseph. And across the generations, that baton is passed all the way down to Jesus. From Machpelah uh, 4,000 years ago, even to DeWitt today, to the end of the 21st century someday, the baton continues to be passed to us. So in this closing message this morning, I would like to just look back a little bit at Abraham's life and what made him such a great man that he is still revered by over two billion people today. Was the secret, what was the secret of his enormous influence that persists across the centuries? I think there's some obvious answers to that question. First and foremost, Abraham believed God. We can say more than that about him, but not less. Supremely, he was a believer in the God of the universe. No other fact can account for his remarkable life. From the moment when God first spoke to him as a prosperous businessman in the land of Ur, but a pagan who never knew anything about God, till the moment he breathed his last, he believed God. Not simply that he believed in God, but he staked all that he was and all that he had on the truth that God spoke to him and the promises God gave him. And for that reason, Abraham stands as the preeminent person of faith in the whole Bible. That's why when the Apostle Paul wants to convince the Romans as to the true nature of saving faith, he illustrates it by referring to the life of Abraham. He even quotes Genesis 15, 6, and he says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abraham stands as the model believer for both the Jews of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament. So what exactly is a Christian? Well, of all the words that we might use to, to answer that question, perhaps the most basic is a word that's simple and yet profound, and that word is believer. A Christian is a person who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and who trusts Christ and him alone for salvation. Over 300 times in the New Testament Gospel of John, some form of the word believe or believer is used to describe what it means to be a Christ follower. Abraham believed God and he became the pattern for believers of every generation. So Abraham was 75 years old when God had called, uh, appeared to him in Ur and promised to give him a son through whom God would bless the world. It was hard enough to believe at that point, but years passed, then more years, 
decades, then another decade, and still no son to fulfill the promise. And finally, when Abraham was about 100 years old and Sarah was about 90, Isaac was born. Now, I would like to remind us again of St. Paul's words in, in Romans chapter 4 as he describes the magnitude of Abraham's faith. He says, And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at, at about 100 years of age he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. I love that phrase, his his body was as good as dead. See, we all understand those words, don't we? This is a simple biological fact. If we live long enough, every part of our body will wear out. Our hair will thin, our eyes will dim, our teeth will loosen, our skin will wrinkle, our muscles will droop, our joints will ache, and our arteries will harden. There is no one who is immune to the passage of time. If you've ever visited a health food store, you'll find lots of supplements on the shelf. Row after row of bottles of herbs and vitamins and amino acids and dietary supplements and capsules and caplets and powders and liquids and muscle builders and inflammation reducers and a lot more. And I believe that some of those products are good for our health, but the the best that any of those products can do is simply slow the steady march of time. Ever since Ponce de Leon searched for the fabled fountain of youth, people have been searching for a way to turn back the clock, but no one's ever succeeded. Abraham had none of the benefits of modern pharmacology, but it didn't matter. There isn't much uh, you can do when a person reaches 100 years old. His chances of having a child were next to nothing. Uh, Not only that, Sarah was far past her childbearing years, and most of her contemporaries were grandmothers or great-grandmothers if they were still alive. There was no way she was ever going to give birth, but against all of the odds, in full understanding of the human possibility of it all, Abraham kept believing God's promise. Sometimes when we see a couple today having a child in their 40s, we might think it a bit out of the norm, but clearly not impossible. No one would call it a miracle. However, what happened to Abraham and Sarah was a miracle, plain and simple. There's no other explanation for a man who becomes a father at the age of 100 or a woman who becomes a mother at the age of 90. Perhaps Abraham's unwavering faith was just as much of a miracle. Most of us would have given up years earlier or never started to believe in the first place, but not Abraham. He keeps on believing even when the facts are against him. Some time ago, I read the story about the Chinese bamboo tree. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but when you plant this tree, it doesn't come up for like five years. First year, nothing. Second year, nothing. Third year, nothing. Fourth year, nothing. And the fifth year, it grows like 90 feet in six weeks. Now the question is, did it grow 90 feet in five years or in six weeks? Obviously, it took five years to develop, even though most of that time, it seems like nothing's happening. And you know what? Most of God's great works in our lives take place not overnight, but over time, over the years. But God can't do his work unless we're willing to keep believing, even when the facts are against us. 
Someone has said that patience is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. But if God is in charge, you can let that motor idle. Every problem doesn't have to be solved today for God to be faithful. He'll do his work in his time if we'll only be patient. Now, Abraham was not a perfect man, far from it. As you read his story, you discover that he was made of the same human mold that we are. He struggled with doubt and with fear and with discouragement and deception and rebellion and blaming other people and selfishness and all the other problems that plagued the human race. And though he was a good man, he was still human in every sense of the word. He was no different from us. As someone has said, we're all made out of the same mold. It's just that some of us are moldier than others. Abraham was not the moldiest person in the Bible, but he wasn't the cleanest either. You remember he lied about his wife, calling her his sister in order to save his own skin at least a couple of times. He risked her purity and his personal safety. Neither incident makes him look very good. He comes off as a man who's not too clever because he's found out by the pagans who expected something better from him. By far, the cleanest, clearest example of Abraham's moldiness comes from the sad story of the birth of Ishmael. At Sarah's urging, he sleeps with this young handmaiden from Egypt, Hagar, and no doubt he and Sarah rationalized their actions were only meant to help fulfill God's promise. But God didn't need his help, especially when it came to immorality. Someone once said it's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do what is right. And to this very day, the world suffers through one crisis after another in the Middle East because the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael struggle for control of the Holy Land. So in light of all of his actions, <clears throat> how can we call Abraham a righteous man, a man of faith? First of all, we call him that because that's what God calls him in Genesis 15, 6. And second, when we evaluate a person's life, it's crucial that we look at the big picture. Direction makes all the difference. It's better to be one foot from hell headed toward heaven than it is to be one foot from heaven headed toward hell. And for all of his weakness and his occasional struggles, Abraham's heart remained fixed on God. And that's why he was called a friend of God, which was one of the highest compliments that God pays anybody in Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Do your friends ever disappoint you? And I'm sure the answer to that would be yes, of course. Sometimes they do. Are they still your friends? Well, many times they remain friends. Why? Because you know that deep down they're still committed to you. And that's precisely how God looks at Abraham. So let me repeat this truth again, that salvation rests on God's character, never on our performance. Those whom God saves, he saves. Because of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he offers, eternal life begins not the moment we die, but the moment we believe. And those who are born again can know God's presence in their life now. I love the words of Psalm 37. The Lord directs the steps of the godly, he delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Proverbs 24, 16 assures us that the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. 
And we see that time and time again in Abraham's life. When he fell, he got up. That's what a righteous person does. He gets up and cleans himself off and keeps on going. So let's go back and take a look at the, the most, I think, one of the most defining moments in Abraham's life. And this is when he and his nephew Lot uh, first enter the, the land of promise and they divide up the land. Genesis 13 tells us that Abraham offered his nephew Lot the first choice of the land, even though he was older and therefore had the right of the first choice. But he voluntarily yields that right for the sake of peace in the family. And Lot chose the well-watered green grass and the plains of near Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know the rest of that story if you've, if you've uh, read Genesis. But don't forget what God says to Abraham in response to his choice. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can and see in every direction, north and south, east and west, I'm giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction for I'm giving it to you. It's as if God is saying, don't worry, Abraham, because you yielded your rights. In the end, all of this land is going to belong to you and your descendants. This is what God meant in Genesis 15:1 when he said, don't be afraid, Abraham, because I'm going to protect you and I'm going to reward you. Your reward will be great. God will be no one's debtor. When the books are finally balanced, none of us will be cheated by God. Those who trust him will find themselves rewarded beyond their wildest dreams. Now, as we think about that fact, it's crucial to remember that Abraham lived and died in faith. He never saw the fulfillment of all that God had promised, but he believed that someday it would eventually all come true. To put it in modern terms, Abraham believed in heaven, and that made all the difference. 2,000 years later, the writer of the book of Hebrews analyzes Abraham's whole life, and he says this, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land that God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. And these verses tell us what we need to know about Abraham. He obeyed God's call. He lived in tents all of his life. But more than that, he was looking for a city, a city that had foundations. And verse 10, I think, is the key. Abraham kept following God because he's looking for a city with foundations, a city that would offer permanent security. Only God could build that kind of city. Indeed, God had already built it. It's called the New Jerusalem. And its glories are described in the end of the, the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. All the saints of all the ages will one day live in that great city whose architect and builder is God. But between now and then, we're all on this journey. Everything built by humans will one day crumble and fall to the dust. Nothing made by our hands will last forever. And so it is with everything in this world, nothing lasts forever. Even the greatest monuments eventually will give way to the erosion of the passing years. Everyone and everything is eventually forgotten. And if you're looking for lasting significance in your life, you'll have to look outside of this world. 
Abraham understood that principle. And that's why he could give up the good for the best. He could take the desert scrub for his flocks because he believed God and that kept him from coveting the things of this earth. One final verse. When Jesus was debating the religious leaders of his day, he makes a passing comment about Abraham that bears repeating. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. Abraham saw Jesus and the sight of the Messiah transformed his life. So let me ask you the question today, have you ever seen Jesus with the eyes of faith? I invite you to look today at the Son of God and to fix your eyes on him. Gaze upon his beauty. There's a little chorus in our hymnal that says, keep your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, those who look to Jesus will never be disappointed. And like Abraham, we will rejoice and be glad forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> Father, I thank you for every good and perfect gift that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and for the gift of salvation by faith. Thank you that Jesus Christ is in us the author and finisher of our faith, and we have received that faith, and the baton has been passed to us. Help us now not to shrink back in fear, but to grow in faith and confidence and help us like Abraham to walk by faith and not by sight. We know that faith pleases you. Nothing is impossible for those who choose to believe. So we place our trust in you, knowing that we will never be disappointed and never be put to shame for doing so. Thank you for your word that continues to build your, our faith in you. Help us now to pass on this faith to the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.